I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and uh, go to John 13. In William Shakespeare's uh, famous play, Julius Caesar, uh, we see the, uh, the dramatization uh, of uh, the betrayal and, and murder of Caesar. And uh, a group of uh, Roman senators feared that uh, Julius Caesar, as a very successful conquering uh, general in the Roman army, might make himself emperor and take away uh, the power of the Senate. Uh, and so they, they began to conspire uh, against him. But in order to, uh, to win Caesar's trust, uh, those conspirators recruited one of Caesar's closest friends. His friend Brutus was the one uh, who convinces uh, Caesar uh, to go down to the Senate building on the Ides of March. That's where the, the conspirators planned uh, to murder him. And in that scene, there's uh, a number of uh, senators who, who gather around and uh, encircle Caesar. Uh, and uh, they, they stab him multiple times. Each of them takes a, a dagger and stabs Caesar with it. But Caesar's last words were not towards all of his conspirators. Caesar's last words were directed towards only one of them. Uh, the, the dagger that, that hurt the most was Brutus's dagger. And Caesar's last words in that play, he says, Et tu, Brute, you also, Brutus? There is something particularly heinous, something particularly treacherous uh, about uh, the betrayal of a close friend. If you've ever had that happen, uh, you know the pain, you know the sting that that brings. And this, this case of Caesar being betrayed by Brutus, it is indeed a, a tragedy. But there is an even more infamous betrayal uh, foreshadowed here in John's Gospel in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. A couple weeks ago, as we've been walking through John 13... Uh, at the beginning of this chapter, we saw Jesus uh, partaking of the Passover meal with his disciples. And, uh, and at the beginning of that Passover meal, none of the disciples uh, wanted to acknowledge that they uh, were uh, the lowest among them. They were in a continual argument throughout Jesus' ministry, arguing about who was the greatest. Uh, and if one of them got up and uh, washed the feet of the others, it would be acknowledging that they were not only the, the greatest, not the greatest, uh, that they were the, the lowest uh, of the disciples. And Jesus rose up and he did what none of the other disciples uh, were, were willing to do. He humbled himself and, and washed their feet. And when he got to the apostle Peter, Peter says, whoa, I won't let you do that. Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter swings the other way. Well, he says, well, in that case, then wash my hands and my head also. Wash all of me, Jesus. But in responding to Peter in verse 9, he says that that is unnecessary. That the one who has been cleansed, i.e. those who have been cleansed by faith in Christ, 
uh, don't need uh, a, a thorough uh, rewashing spiritually uh, every single time. But Jesus is, is saying uh, that is not necessary. But he says only uh, his feet need to be washed. Again, just a picture of a small cleanup rather than a full bath. But I would draw your attention to, to verses 10 and 11. Because uh, Jesus says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet and is completely clean. And you are clean. But then he, he makes a little statement at the end of verse 10. He says, but you are clean. Saying all of them are, are spiritually cleansed because they have looked to him in faith. But he makes one exception. He says, but not all of you. Verse 11, we have uh, the words of uh, the Apostle John commenting on what Jesus has said. He says, for he knew... The one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus doesn't give any type of false assurance to the one who is going to betray him. Then uh, in verses 12 to 17, which we said a couple weeks back, uh, we saw Jesus commenting on his earlier actions. That he he uh, puts back on his, his outer garments and he sits down and he says, do you understand what I've done for you? Uh, and he, he explains to them the significance of what he has done. And he challenges them. He calls them. He commands them to humbly serve others in the same way that he has humbled himself and served them. Then after uh, that explanation, at the end of it, in verse 17, he promises that if you do these things, you will be blessed. Blessed are you if you do these things. Then in verse 18, which begins our passage that we're going to study th- this morning, uh, Jesus makes it clear that uh, once again... Well, not all of you are going to receive that kind of blessing because not all of them are going to actually obey. Not all of them are going to walk in faith with Christ. If you look at me, beginning of verse 18, Jesus says, I do not speak about all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he became troubled in spirit. And he bore witness and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. And so Simon Peter gestured to him to inquire who is the one of whom he is speaking. And he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He is the one for whom I shall dip the piece of bread and give it to him. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the piece of bread, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. 
And now no one of those uh, reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were thinking, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things that we have need for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. Let's pause and pray. Father, we come to your word this morning seeking to know you, seeking to to understand who you are, seeking to understand how you have worked in human history, seeking to understand all that you have blessed us with in your son, Jesus. But we also seek to understand ourselves when we come to your word. We pray now that you would use your word to shed light upon our hearts. Help us to see and know ourselves better and help us to get a a better, more clear glimpse of the character of our Savior, your Son, who reveals you to us. It is in his name that we come to you and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. As Jesus eats... The Last Supper with the twelve disciples, he makes this stunning announcement. He says that that one of them is going to betray him. One of these men who has walked with him over the last three years of his earthly ministry is one of those men is going to betray him. And you could you could say that this uh, betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot that it is the ultimate betrayal. He never had so much knowledge been suppressed. See, Judas saw things uh, in his relationship and in his walk with Christ, following him around for three years. He saw things that we won't know about. We can't even imagine. John says that uh, if he were to write down all of the, the works that Jesus did in those three years of ministry, they would fill every book in the world. Those are the things that Judas was an eyewitness to. Never has so much knowledge been suppressed. Never has a heart been so hardened against all that he has seen and heard. And never has a sinner rejected so great a love. How do you imagine Judas felt that he's been plotting against Jesus and then Jesus comes and humbles himself and washes Judas's feet? Having a perfect knowledge of what Judas is going to do in just a few hours. There is no greater betrayal. And as we look at this betrayal by one of the disciples, we see as as churchgoers, as those who are saying that we are following Christ, we have the ultimate warning because of this ultimate betrayal. Now, we don't often uh, heed warnings. Uh, even when they are uh, written in Scripture, uh, even when they are uh, spoken to us by an authority. And it's even more difficult to draw out the the implicit warnings of a life lived 2,000 years ago. Yet what we have to see and understand that Judas stands here as a testimony, as a witness, as a warning to each of us. But you might ask, how are we warned by God through Judas, through the life of this man who has betrayed Christ. 
Well, this scene breaks down into, into four parts, and each of those portions, I think there is something that we need to notice, something that we need to observe. And they all fit together in uh, this significant, this ultimate warning. The first thing that we should take notice of is in verses 18 through 20. That is, uh, we, we should take notice of the assurance of God's plan. See, Jesus begins by noting that not all 12 of the, uh, of the 12 are clean. Uh, and uh, he says, not all of you uh, are, uh, are clean. Not all of you uh, are being spoken of when he makes that proclamation. But then he, he assures the 12 that this is not by accident. But this is by design. Because right off, immediately after saying, I do not speak about all of you, what does he say? He says, I know the ones I have chosen. When, when Jesus uh, went up on the, the mountain and, and prayed all night concerning who he would choose to be his, his group of 12 that he was going to pour into, that group of 12 who were going to be with him night and day over the course of his earthly ministry, that night he prayed and he chose 11 faithful men. And he chose one man who would be treacherous. One man who would be unfaithful. One man who would betray him. And all of this is according to God's plan. Jesus says this was to fulfill Scripture. This is what was prophesied uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, And Jesus quotes uh, Psalm 41, verse 9. Uh, And uh, in that psalm, David is uh, speaking about his own experience of being betrayed by a, a close friend. And the reality of uh, shared uh, table fellowship uh, shows uh, just how close this relationship was. Uh, And it heightens the betrayal even more. Now, rabbinic tradition says that uh, when David wrote in Psalm 41.9, that he was probably speaking uh, about the betrayal of a man named Ahithophel. Uh, Ahithophel was one of his counselors. Uh, but when Absalom rose up uh, against his father David uh, and sought to, to take the kingdom by force, uh, Ahithophel stayed back in Jerusalem. Uh, and this man who was a counselor to David became a counselor to his son Absalom in uh, the civil war that was breaking out. And even though David uh, is writing about his own experience, Jesus uh, applies that verse to himself. Uh, and this this brings forth a, a bigger, larger theological framework uh, that we see over and over again in Scripture, that, that Jesus is the, the second or the new or the greater David. Uh, and th- the major life themes that we see in the life of David are also going to be the, the experiences of the future Messiah who comes in the line of David. But Jesus points to this prophecy as a source of encouragement uh, to the 11 disciples uh, who are going to remain faithful to him. He says he wants them to know ahead of time. Verse 19, from now on, I am telling you before it occurs so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Or literally in the Greek, that you may believe that I am. We have that that well-known statement throughout John's gospel uh, that that, uh, has implied the the deity of Christ. Jesus wants them to know what's going to happen ahead of time so that when when Judas betrays Jesus, that they are prepared, that they see it coming, that they're not uh, side-swiped by what takes place. 
Now, over the course of my adult life, I have learned that the best time to be prepared for a crisis is ahead of time. I learned to carry jumper cables in my car by being stranded on the road multiple times with a dead battery. I learned to keep chains in the car after getting stuck in the snow. And I learned to keep gloves in the wintertime because putting on chains without gloves in the snow is also not fun. It is best to be prepared ahead of time. How many of you moms have a snack or an activity in your purse right now for your kids? Right? Dads, you can't have that snack. Don't ask for it. But moms, you can trace that back to the realization of you need to be prepared ahead of time when your child asks. And that shows your love and your care and your concern that you have a desire to be ready for that occasion when your kids need help. And here you see the love and the compassion of Christ. He loves his disciples and he is shepherding them in a loving way, knowing what they need to know. He doesn't want their faith to be destroyed. He wants their faith to be bolstered. Because it's going to to be unnerving when one of them, this close-knit group of, of friends, but when one of them betrays their teacher, their Lord, their master. This is important for us to see the love and compassion and the how and the why of uh, Jesus uh, shepherding his people. One commentator says, we should not miss the tender concern implied in this prediction. Now, the, the disciples might well have been seriously shocked and their faith shattered had the betrayal taken them completely unawares. They might have thought Jesus' enemies too resourceful for him. The prediction altered all of that. It ensured that on reflection, they would continue to see his mastery of the situation. That when he was betrayed into the hands of his enemies, it was just what he had foretold. He was not the deceived and helpless victim of unsuspected treachery. But one sent by God to effect the design purpose going forward calmly and unafraid to do what God had planned that he should do. See, this is really, really important. I mentioned Julius Caesar earlier. Julius Caesar was a helpless victim. His enemies conspired against him and he could do nothing to stop them. Uh, And uh, Jesus wants his disciples to know that's not what is going to take place. That Jesus is not a helpless victim who was overcome by this conspiracy by the religious leaders. Jesus is saying, I know exactly what's going to happen. I want this to happen. This is all a part of God's plan. And I want you to be encouraged by it rather than discouraged by it. We also see in verse 20 that, that the apostles' ministry is going to continue even beyond Judas's betrayal. Things are not going to come tumbling down when Judas betrays Jesus. Verse 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. There's really two principles here, that the one who Jesus uh, sends is going to be, uh, and whoever receives that person who is sent by Jesus is actually receiving Jesus. And why is this important? Well, the apostles, literally, that means the sent ones. As Jesus is going to send out the remaining 11, he's saying whoever receives you guys is going to be receiving Jesus himself. And the second statement there is that whoever receives Jesus is receiving the one who sent Jesus, who is, which is God the Father. 
ministry will continue. God's plan is not going to be thwarted by this one betrayal. Jesus loves his disciples and he's going to shepherd them in love and he's going to give them an assurance by pointing to the bigger, greater plan of God. God's plan incorporates Judas's treachery. It's not going to be derailed by it. But in pointing to this assurance of God's plan, uh, we can also notice uh, something else uh, that leads to it in verses uh, 21 to 25. Jesus is saying it is part of God's plan that there would be a betrayer. Uh, And this shows the, the reality of tares among wheat. Verses 21 to 25. We look at that section again. When Jesus had said these things, he became troubled in spirit and bore witness and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now, verse 21 is significant because of the description that we have uh, about uh, the emotional state of Jesus. That, That word that he was deeply troubled now, we've seen it before. We saw it back in John eleven thirty three, uh, when Jesus was weeping uh, as he saw the mourners coming forth and weeping over Lazarus. Uh, that, that word has the idea that Jesus is, is shaking with emotion. Seen also in John chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So Jesus was quaking with emotion and just grieving with those who were grieving the loss of his friend Lazarus, and he's quaking with emotion as he talks about the cross and the wrath of God that he is going to endure. We also see that he's quaking with emotion here. That bearing witness or testifying to his disciples, to his friends, that one of them is going to betray him, that is an emotional conversation. How would you feel in that conversation? How would you like to confront a friend that they're going to betray you? Not just like a a small betrayal, but because of their decision, because of that betrayal, it's going to lead to your death. Think of all of the emotions that Jesus is going through right here and right now. Waking, shaking with emotion. And what is clearly stated in a private setting here was alluded to earlier in Jesus' ministry. This is not some recent uh, revelation that Jesus has received concerning Judas. If you go back to to John chapter 6. The end of that chapter, right as uh, many of uh, those who are following Jesus are, are choosing to walk away. Uh, they're saying, well, it, it's kind of uh, strange what Jesus is, is teaching here by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. This is a hard saying. But if you look at verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. And as a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
And Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So what's interesting is that as John the Apostle wrote his gospel account, he wanted the reader to know what was going to happen. He's doing exactly what Jesus, Jesus did. He's leaving breadcrumbs for us along the way so that when we come and see the, the betrayal by Judas, we are not caught unawares. But yet also what we know is not what the other 11 disciples uh, lived throughout in real time. We know what they don't know at this point in time in the Last Supper. So when Jesus speaks these words uh, and he's visibly agitated, right? He turns and he is he's shaking. I would imagine his, his voice uh, is uh, is quaking, and he says, "One of you will betray me." I think there's probably a, a quiet uproar among the the twelve. The other gospel accounts give us more uh, insight. Mark. 14:19 says they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one surely not I Matthew 26:25 and Judas who was betraying him said surely it is not I rabbi and Jesus said to him you have said it yourself Luke 22 says they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing from a, from a human perspective, none of them stood out as a traitor. Right? There wasn't like, well, we've always kind of been suspicious of this one guy over here. They're all just wondering, like, is it you? I don't know. Is it this guy over here? I don't know. Like, so you just wonder what was being said at uh, that, that table as they, they lay down around the table and were conversing with one another. You wonder what, what Judas would have said. Like, what type of excuses does he have at that point in time? But, but their uh, lack of understanding and their inability to know who it was who was going to betray Jesus, uh, this points to a reality that Jesus taught during his own earthly ministry, that, that among his disciples there would be some who would genuinely believe, who would genuinely be born again and have a regenerated heart. And there's also going to be some uh, who do not actually know him. Now, they're going to be in and among the, the church, but they don't actually know Christ. They don't actually believe him. If you turn back with me to John uh, or Matthew chapter 13, well, we see this laid out for us in, in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 36. And then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And so just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will bring forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. 
So in the, the church age, uh, there is uh, uh, the invisible church, uh, those, all those who are truly in Christ. And then there's the visible church, those who are uh, in individual local churches. Uh, and in the visible church throughout the church age, there's always going to be a mixture of wheat and tares. There's always going to be a mixture of those who genuinely know Christ with those who genuinely don't know Christ, but claim that they do. And because the the disciples can't immediately recognize or figure out who is uh, the identity or who this betrayer is, Peter, I gotta love Peter. He's always doing work in something. Peter's like, I gotta know. So he he nods, uh, and so Peter must be across the table in some capacity. He he nods to uh, John, and John is the one mentioned uh, without being given his name in verse twenty three. Uh, he, he nods uh, over to to the apostle John. He says, "Hey, like," and John understood what what that meant by Peter. Like, "Hey," he just nods. What, what does that mean? Like, basically, find out who this is. I gotta know. And, and if you remember how they would uh, recline uh, and kind of uh, in a spiral fashion be uh, assembled around uh, the table of this feast, that they would, uh, each one of them would lie on his left elbow with his feet kind of uh, pointing outward away from the table. And they would kind of reach with their right hand uh, to get food uh, off of the, the shared table. Uh, and so uh, at that point, uh, John is uh, on the right hand side of Jesus. Everyone's leaning toward his, uh, on their left elbow. Uh, it would be easy for John to kind of lean back uh, and very quietly ask Jesus a question. And he does that. He, he leans back into the, into the chest of Jesus and he says, Lord, who, who is it? The disciples can't, can't recognize who this is. So John asks this, this quiet question. And it's a question that many of us would, would love to ask in our own time. We don't have the ability. We don't have the ability to, to go and ask Jesus, like, hey, is so-and-so truly a believer? What should we think about them? But we need to, to notice and to observe the lesson that is that there are tares among the wheat. And, and those tares are not always going to be easy to, to spot. We have to, to understand and believe this reality. This is, this is a truth that we are to believe. That we won't be able to recognize those tears. Uh, and some of the, the, the tears are going to be made visible with time. Time and truth go hand in hand. Some people will reveal that they're not actually following Christ. That becomes evident. But there's going to be some who won't be revealed until the end of the age, until that time of judgment comes. And if there was a tear among the 12 disciples, how much more do we need to take heed that there are tears uh, among the, the greater church? This is what we have to see, what we have to observe, what we have to, to trust and believe. We can look to the assurance that God's plan provides and we can believe and trust that the re- there is a reality that there are tears among the wheat. There's also a third observation that we need to, to make in verses 26 to 29. Say that the limitations of human hypocrisy. Now we saw, we saw John lean back and ask that question of Jesus. Lord, who is it? 
And Jesus answered in verse 26, He is the one for whom I shall dip the piece of bread and give it to him. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the piece of bread, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were thinking, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying, buy the things that they have need for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So John leans back and asks this quiet question. And Jesus gives him a quiet response. When Jesus says, it's going to be the one, I, I, I'm going to dip this piece of bread and I'm going to give it to him. No, but none of the other disciples hear that except John, who, who's leaning back and is in close proximity. And we know nobody else hears that because if everybody at the table hears that, they're going to know the significance of Jesus dipping the bread and then giving it to Judas. But that doesn't stand out as strange to any of them. They don't know what's going on. When Jesus or when Judas leaves, they're like, okay, he must be, he's still on mission. He's still doing what Jesus has asked him to do. But it's also probably likely is that if the apostle John is on the right hand side, of Jesus, it's, it's likely that Judas was on the left-hand side. Uh, and at this type of a, of a banquet, that was actually the position of higher honor, the left-hand side, and the right was the second highest honor. Because Jesus dips the bread, and then he immediately hands it. You've got to be within close proximity there. You might say, well, well how in the world is Judas in, in the highest position of honor? Well, Jesus... Judas had, uh, well, thinking through the the role that Judas had in this group of the twelve, he was in possession of the money box. He was the treasurer. He was the one in charge of all of the the funds. That is uh, an honor and a responsibility. And so he was seated there, probably on Jesus' left-hand side. Jesus takes, takes the bread and dips it, and that's actually a mark of friendship. It's a mark and a sign of of table fellowship. And he gives that to him, and he says, what you do, do quickly. There's various ways of trying to understand what Jesus is is saying here. might be uh, encouraging Judas to to hurry up in the betrayal. Do what you are doing more quickly than what you planned. In essence, hey, go now. You were planning on betraying me later, but just go now. But I think there's also a gesture of friendship in handing that bread to Judas. It's like one final appeal, right? If it's a mark of friendship and you're giving this to the one who's going to betray you, you're like, are are you sure you want to do this? Do you have one more more chance? Judas is, is probably feeling the guilt, feeling the weight upon his own heart and shoulders. Given the opportunity to turn from his treachery. But he's not going to. Love what John Calvin says on this passage. He, said, he says, Hitherto Jesus tried by various methods to bring Judas back, but to no purpose. And now he addresses him as a desperate man. Go to destruction, since you have resolved to go to destruction. 
And in doing so, he performs the office of a judge who condemns to death, not those whom he drives of his own accord to ruin, but those who have already ruined themselves by their own fault. It's an appeal to Judas, but it's also a judgment upon Judas. If you're going to do this, do this quickly. Get going. And the other disciples, since they didn't overhear the, the small side conversation between John and Jesus, they aren't aware of any of the significance. They just assume uh, that, that Judas is, is going out as the, the holder of the money box, that he's going to get more supplies, uh, more provisions for the week-long feast, or that he might be going to the temple. Uh, it was a uh, common place during the, the, the Passover uh, for the temple grounds to be opened and, and uh, alms would be given to the poor, uh, even late into the night during that week. So they assume that Judas is just going out to, to give alms to the poor, make, uh, get provisions for the feast. All of this reveals something uh, important that we, that we have to, to notice. Notice the, the depth of Judas's hypocrisy. Now, now uh, a hypocrite is one who wears a mask. Uh, it's the idea of an actor or a pretender. And uh, what's significant in this uh, Conception. there is a tremendous difference between the mask and the character underneath the mask. And, and Judas wore his mask so well that the other 11 disciples had no even inkling, no hint that he was going to betray Jesus. Now, Jesus used the term hypocrite to describe uh, the religious leaders of his day. He said they, they had uh, put on a mask uh, proclaiming that they loved God and that they loved man when they, they truly loved neither of them. And as hypocritical as the, the false religious leaders were, I think Judas is the ultimate hypocrite. And while the, the mask that Judas wore fooled the other 11 disciples, it didn't fool Jesus. So the, the, this is the limitation of our hypocrisy. It fools others, it never fools God. Jesus sees through the mask of every hypocrite. And the mask of hypocrisy uh, cannot fool him at any point in time. He doesn't see as man sees. He looks upon the human heart and he discerns the thoughts and intentions of every single human heart. He, he looks and sees all of our motivations, all, all of our own conspiracies for our own glory, all of our uh, provisions for sin in our heart. Jesus is aware of those. Others see the mask. Jesus looks directly at our hearts. And, and this is a, a warning to us. To guard against hypocrisy in our own lives. Some of us have really ornate, well-drawn masks. Handcrafted by us. And they fool others, but they cannot, will not, never will fool Christ. Jesus knows everything. Jesus knows what you are under that mask. Charles Spurgeon has a, a brief chapter in one of his books called Men with Two Faces. He says they may give a moment's peace to wear a mask, but deception will come home to you and bring sorrow with it. And that's actually what we're going to see in the, in the final verse in this section this is going to be the, the strongest warning one single verse 
the darkness of rejecting Jesus. So after receiving the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. Now it seems like Judas was not at all affected by the the emotional turmoil that, that Jesus was expressing when he says that one of them will betray him. Judas is completely unaffected. He takes the piece of bread and he immediately departs. He's given himself over fully and completely to the plans and purposes of Satan. Satan entered into him because uh, their plans were perfectly aligned. Satan wants to see Jesus destroyed because he doesn't want the Messiah to rule and reign. And Judas is willing to see Jesus destroyed so he can receive 30 pieces of silver. We're told that throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus, that that Judas, as the, the caretaker of that money box, that he was continually stealing from it taking money out of it. And that that passion, that love for money continued to control him and ultimately led him to betray Christ. The Apostle John's statement at the end of verse 30 is loaded with theological meaning. It's a really short statement. John is not merely saying that the sun had gone down. That had taken place hours earlier. When he says it was night... He's building upon what he has built earlier in this gospel account. This imagery that Jesus uses repeatedly of light and darkness to point to larger spiritual concepts. Back in John eight twelve, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John eleven ten. but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. But when we are told that, that Judas goes out into the darkness, the implication is there is no light in him. The implication is that he has run to the world and that he has fully and completely rejected Christ. John is emphasizing the choice that Judas has made. And he is emphasizing the results of rejecting Christ. To reject Jesus, the light of the world, is to strand yourself in darkness. To say, I'd rather live in the darkness than live by the light that Christ shines into my life. There's a recurring theme back in John chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. What we're told is that the, the light has an effect upon people. You either are drawn to it or you run from it. What's amazing is when Jesus says at the Last Supper, one of you will betray me, Judas like can't wait to get out of there. He, he wants to run as quick as he can. This topic comes up, he's like, I got I to gotta go. And then Jesus hands him the piece of bread and go do what you do quickly. Judas is like, all right, where are my shoes? Where are my sandals? I'll get them on. I'll get rolling. 
when we have a, a guilty conscience, we, we tend to do one of two things. We, we strive to, to flee, to cover, to conceal, uh, to avoid anything that might prick our conscience, right? You know that feeling. Sadly, we all know it. That's one way of responding. The other second way, the proper way of responding to our guilt before God, when your conscience convicts you, we are to confess our sin to God and ask for forgiveness. To come and acknowledge our guilt. Judas chooses the former rather than the latter. And the next time we see Judas, he's going to be at the head of a mob that arrives at the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus is there praying. And Judas, in the darkness of night, as he leads this this mob, he's going to identify uh, Jesus. He's going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss. He's going to go and kiss Jesus on the, on the cheek, and the guards are going to come and arrest Jesus. Takes him to, to trial. Matthew 27 records what happens uh, as Judas observes uh, the trials of Jesus. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. And then when Judas, who had betrayed him saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And, and he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. Judas knew that he had betrayed his friend, his teacher. I think at the end he understood that he had betrayed his creator. And his guilt overwhelmed him. But he, even though he acknowledged and he said, I've sinned, there wasn't genuine repentance. He still sought to run from it. But you cannot run from your guilt. It has this amazing ability to follow you wherever you go. And if you try to run, you'll run to the same place that Judas ran. And death doesn't escape from guilt. It just seals your guilt before a holy God. And rather than running from Jesus with a guilty conscience, we are commanded over and over again in Scriptures to run to Him. Knowing our guilt and running from Him will result in sorrow, death, and judgment. But knowing our guilt and running to Jesus and laying it down before Him and saying, I have sinned, please forgive me. That leads to forgiveness, life, and peace. How are we going to handle the guilt in our life? How are we going to respond to it? The choice belonged to Judas and the choice belongs to each one of us. How are we going to respond? My hope and prayer is that each one of us would run to Jesus, not from him. Now, this is the warning that we see here in John 13. We, we see the assurance of God's plan. We see the reality of tares among wheat. We see the limitation of human hypocrisy. We see the darkness of rejecting Jesus. This week, I began listening to a, a book by David McCullough called the Johnstown Flood, recounts a disaster that took place on uh, Memorial Day, May 31st, 1889. 
there in uh, Pennsylvania, there was a, uh, a dam known as the South Fork Dam, which was on the, the Little Connemaw River. And for several uh, days, there was extremely heavy rainfall. And there was a, a well-documented history of reports that that particular dam, the South Fork Dam, was old, it was poorly built, and it was in poor repair. And it was located about 14 miles upstream uh, from the town of, of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And warnings to uh, the citizens of that town about the dangers of that dam bursting uh, actually extended back for decades. But the warnings became so commonplace that they were eventually ignored uh, by the citizens. Uh, and on the, the day that the dam uh, burst, there was actually multiple ways that the citizens were warned. There was a runner sent, and there were telegraphs sent, uh, and uh, so many of the citizens didn't listen. They had heard it all before. They were so familiar with those warnings that they ignored them. Water began spewing over the dam for several hours uh, before it eventually broke, but when it did, the amount of water that came flowing down that narrow valley was equal to the average flow of the Mississippi River. Some 14 and a half million uh, cubic uh, meters of water came rushing down. The flood completely destroyed Johnstown, which was previously a, a uh, prosperous industrial city, and it killed 2,200 people. And that flood became a, a, a warning to every future generation. Every little town that was close to a dam, guess what they began to do? Let's go check the security of the dam. But let's learn from Johnstown. In the same way, Judas stands as a warning to the entire church throughout its history. Now, we are warned about uh, the danger of hardening our hearts towards Christ. Uh, we are, are warned about the deceitfulness of sin. If Judas can see and be an eyewitness to Jesus' life and ministry, and he can still turn away and pursue money rather than Christ, we need to take heed. We need to be aware. We also need to see and be warned by the way that Judas chose to deal with his guilt. Running from it. Being driven mad by it rather than running back to God. See, Judas stands as a warning of the danger of sin and spiritual darkness. Uh, and I hope and pray that even though many of us uh, have heard the gospel many times, you, if you've sat uh, in church for years and years, sometimes the warnings become white noise. You know, that you stop giving heed to them because it's all so familiar. But don't be like the citizens of Johnstown. Eventually, the dam is going to burst. Eventually, we are all going to have to stand before a holy God and deal with the guilt of our sin. And are we at that point in time, are we going to say our guilt is dealt with because we have run to Christ? Or are we going to say our guilt is still right there with us? We've been running from it, but it's been hounding us all the days of our lives. Which one will we choose? How will we deal with our guilt? Will we be like Judas or will we be like Peter, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks. But Peter's also going to deny Christ, but he's going to repent and come back. May we be more like Peter than like Judas.
But let's pray and then we'll, we'll close things out with one final song.